Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. We're studying through these attributes of God, and each week we've been looking a few times at a couple of the attributes and a few times at individual attributes. This morning we've been looking at two attributes of God, the attributes of God's truthfulness and His goodness. And all of these attributes, just to remind you, are meant to be held together. And they're not intended to be looked at and, and embraced and observed, observed separately. This is who God is. He is all of these all of the time. And so this morning we're going to be looking at two of them, holding them and embracing them together. But as you get to Jeremiah chapter 10, go ahead and stand and then follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, the one who is true and holy, who is living and active. And so we come hopeful, trusting you, and asking you, Lord, to use your word to do what it is intended to do, to bring life to grow us, to speak what is true about you. And then help us, Father, to embrace the truth of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The text that we just read is primarily about the attribute of God's truthfulness. Wayne Grudem, in defining God's truthfulness, says, God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. Last week we looked at the attribute of God's omniscience, his knowledge. We saw how God reveals some knowledge to us so that we might know him. The secret things are of the Lord, but those that are revealed are so that we would know him and and obey him. And that flows into this attribute of God's truthfulness. John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is 
true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so as we consider this attribute of God's truthfulness first this morning, I want to look at the three areas that were mentioned in the definition. First is God, and we're talking about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the true God. Secondly, his knowledge. God's knowledge is true and the final standard of truth. And third, his word is true. His words are true and the final standard of truth. And so first, the God of the Bible is the true God. That's exactly what John is writing in 1 John 5.20. He alone is the one who fully conforms to what God is. He is infinite. He is holy. He is perfect in power. He is all wise. He is good. He is Lord over all things. He reigns. He is sovereign. He alone is those things. All of these attributes that we are studying, yes, some of them are communicable attributes. They are communicated and shared with his creation. But we do not compare We go back to the first attribute that we looked at, God's aseity, or or the fact that he is self-existent. He is independent from us. We are far different, less than he is. He is other than us. And that's as we talk about him being the only one who conforms to what God is. That's not that we get to decide that. That's not that we as humans get to observe and think, I think this is what God would be or ought to be like, and this being qualifies, so he is God. No, he determined that because he is that. And in his goodness and grace, he has revealed to us what he is like. And so we acknowledge who he is and that he is true. In Jeremiah chapter 10, Jeremiah is distinguishing between the emptiness of falsehood and the emptiness of idols and the glory of the true God, the one who is true. If you look at the first verses that are listed there, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 10 of Jeremiah, idols... Uh, Jeremiah is identifying, idols are vanity. They're, they're like a mist or a vapor. You consider a mist, James talks about our life being a vapor or a mist, meaning that it's here and it's gone. If you, if you were to spray a mist out of a, a bottle, it's, it, you, you can watch it. It just it vanishes so quickly before you. Our lives are that way. And idols, any form of idolatry is vanity. It's here and it's gone. He says they're, they're made of trees. In other words, they're made from created things. So, so the natural thought would be, who made those things? Who made the things that we're making idols out of? And why are we not worshiping him? These idols that are vanity, they're formed by the hands of those Who will worship them? That's what Jeremiah is saying. This is vanity. This is emptiness. To think that you would craft and create something and then worship it. It doesn't even begin to make sense, Jeremiah is showing us. This is they're fastened with hammer and nails. That's verse 
4, what does he mean by that? He says, they can't move. These idols, they, they're, they're just a, they're a block. They're just there. They're stuck. They're immobile. They can do nothing. It goes on. They can't speak. They can't communicate with you. They can't let you know what they want of you or what they desire. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, verse 5. Imagine that. Imagine worshiping something you have to carry, something that is dependent on you to move. It's emptiness, Jeremiah says. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. And he says, don't fear them. They're not to be feared. These idols are not to cause fear of any kind in you. They can do nothing. Don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil to you. And it's not possible for them to do good. They are empty. It is vanity. They are like a mist. They are not worthy of worship. But there's hope because there's a great transition as the Lord is speaking here. Verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you? This great distinction between man and those empty, vain things that we tend to worship and God who is great and greatly to be praised... You're great, and your name is great in might or in power. So distinguishing between all of these other things, these, these idols that are, that are dependent on others to craft them and dependent on others to, to carry them, and they're, they're nothing, they're emptiness. Here stands God who is great and whose name is great in power. Whereas idols are nothing to fear, Verse 7, who would not fear you, O king? This is your due. You are worthy of our fear. You're worthy of our reverence. You alone are worthy. There's none that compares with you. There's none like you, O Lord. Again, in verses 8 and 9, he contrasts against the foolishness of idols. He says they're both stupid and foolish. Why? why? Why is he making this comparison? Why is he, why is he saying these things against these idols? And, and the reason is verse 10 and this attribute that we're looking at this morning. Because the Lord is the true God. The Lord alone is true. And so as we look at this attribute of God's truthfulness, first we acknowledge that the God of the Bible is the true God. He is the only one, the only being worthy of worship. He is the opposite. He is the other of all of these things. He is great in power. He does move. He is alive. He can and does speak. He does not need to be carried. In fact, he carries and holds together all other things. 
The God of the Bible is the true God. Secondly, his knowledge. What he knows, what we talked about last week, God's knowledge is true and is the final standard of truth. Job 37, verse 16, God is perfect in knowledge. What he knows is perfect. It is true. All that God knows is true. As we talked last week about the depths of his knowledge and how we can never even begin to scratch the surface. He knows all things. And all of those things that God has perfect knowledge of, all things, his knowledge is correct knowledge. He's always true. He's always right. We tend to push against that. Our searching out of truth, we have to recognize that we are only right, we are only correct in our thinking to the extent that we agree with what God already knows. That the standard of truth is conformity to God and His knowledge. And so at any point, if I am thinking the same thing that God thinks about anything in the universe, then I'm right. Because He's right. Because He is true. I'm thinking truthfully about whatever it is only if I am thinking what God is thinking about those things. As we discussed God's knowledge last week, we talked about He knows Himself perfectly. All of the things that we stand in awe and we'll never begin to know about God, He knows fully about Himself. And those things, whether we would agree with Him or not, are always true. He is truth. And his knowledge is the final standard of truth. And therefore, our desire ought to be, as we come before God, to conform to what he knows and to who he is. So the God of the Bible is the true God and his knowledge is true and the final standard of truth. And third, as we speak of God's truthfulness, his words are true. And the final standard of truth. Because of his grace, as we'll discuss in a moment, because of his goodness, God has communicated some of his knowledge to us. That's what we talked about again last week. Hidden things, the secret things are the Lord's. But there are things, there are things that he's revealed to us about himself that we might know him, that we might know the truth of the gospel. He's spoken to us in and through the scriptures and we can trust what the scriptures say because they're from God who is true. God says what is true. In fact, Titus 1 verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. As we approach God's word, we can know it comes from one who is true and the standard of truth and also one who cannot lie. And so whatever he has spoken to us is true and therefore trustworthy. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to speak anything that is not absolutely truth. The psalmist in Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words. 
like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You know that, that picture of the purification of gold or the purification of silver where it's put over a hot fire and the impurities rise to the top so that they're scraped off again and again. As those impurities come to the top, they're scraped away so that the, the silver that remains is pure. It's undefiled in any way. And it's here in the psalm that it's compared to God's word. Whatever he speaks is completely pure. It's true. It's trustworthy. We do not fear what the Lord has spoken because he speaks truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And so we look to the word as the final standard of truth. God's words are truth and the final standard of truth. His words are the final definition of what is truth. Remember Jesus in John 17 as he's praying? In John 17, verse 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What you say is right. What you say is true. And as those who follow him, we come to him, submitting to him as we submit to his word, knowing, God, you are truth. And what you've spoken is true. It's trustworthy. And so whatever conforms to God's word is therefore also true. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So conform them to the image of Jesus through your word. And so as these, in these things, as, as disciples of the Lord, as followers of Jesus, as those who desire to worship, and we ought to pursue knowing what is true. We have a desire to know what is truth. And therefore, we ought to pursue knowing God. Because He is true. We ought to pursue knowing His words that we might know Him more and conform more to His words and to His knowledge. If your word is truth, what have you said, Lord? And then as we, as we seek to submit to him and what is true, then we ought to imitate that. As we've talked about these communicable attributes, they're communicated to us that we might walk in them, that we might reflect the beauty of, of God's attributes to those around us. And so we're called to imitate his truth to one another. Paul says in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You be truthful to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, speak the truth in love. And that's in the midst of this picture of us growing up into the conformity and maturity of Jesus Christ. The more we become like Christ, the more we practice Christ to one another. We speak truth in love to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put, all, uh, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for remembers one of another. So even as we, as we come before the Lord and, and the one who is true and we submit to his word that is truth and we seek to be conformed to that truth, that flows horizontally. We ought to imitate we ought to imitate the truth that we see in God. This attribute of God's truthfulness is this. He is the true God. 
And all of his knowledge and all of his words are both true and the final standard of truth. We ought to pursue him in that. We ought to pursue knowing him in that. But the truth is we are broken. And we tend to doubt. We tend to struggle with what is true. As we see and read things in Scripture, at times we're prone to doubt. And that's where the second attribute that we're going to talk about this morning comes in. Because not only is God truthful, and therefore because He is truthful, is absolutely worthy that we do whatever He says. He is good. God is good. God is the final standard of what is good. He is the standard of what is true, and He's standard of what is good. Everything that God does and everything that He says and all that He is is worthy of approval. God's goodness is that which, which leads Him, moves Him to be kind to us, to be pleasant, to be generous and full of good toward mankind. At, at times, we've talked about this as we, we look at the attributes of God, we're tempted to have this picture of God, and, and, and humans are tempted to have this picture of God as if he's just this uh, disconnected old man in a rocker. Or that he's harsh. But God is good, and he's kind to those he has created. And by his very nature, he's inclined to be good. To bless. He takes pleasure in the happiness of his creatures. A.W. Tozer writes this divine goodness, God's goodness, as one of God's attributes is self caused, infinite, perfect, and eternal. His goodness, in other words, is not a response to me. God is not good to me because I deserve it or because he's seen something in me worthy of his goodness. That's what Tozer is saying here. It's, it's just self-caused. It's who he is. God is simply good. The cause of all of his goodness, the cause of all of his generosity, the cause of his kindness is all in himself. It's just him. He's good. We're recipients. We're just benefactors of his goodness. Any good that we have in our life is because of him, because he is good, not because we've merited any of it. Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. God alone is good. In in other words, it's not as if he's looking out over the face of the earth and finding those who are sort of good to give his goodness to. He alone is good. And he bestows goodness on those who are not good. Because he's kind, he's good. Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says, you are good and do good. It's who you are and it's what you do, God. 
Whether we acknowledge that, whether we feel that or not, he's good and he does good. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. Verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The sun rises and falls on everyone. Crops grow because of God. We are fed because of God. We are loved by God because of God. We receive grace because of God. So we ought to conform to the knowledge and words of the one true God, but we can do that in the knowledge that He is very, very good. His words are trustworthy and He is good. I love Tozer's words. Reminds us that every, every single aspect of our relationship with God is because of his goodness and his goodness alone. He writes this, Repentance, though necessary, is not meritorious, but a condition for receiving the gracious gift of pardon which God gives of his goodness. Prayer is not in itself meritorious, It lays God under no obligation nor puts him in any debt to us. He hears prayer because he is good and for no other reason. Nor is faith meritorious. It is simply confidence in the goodness of God. And the lack of it is not a reflection upon God's holy character. He is simply good. And we are not. You see, truth and goodness are fully displayed in Jesus. Jesus, who John tells us in John 1, came full of grace and truth. He displays God's truthfulness. He displays God's goodness fully to us. He's the Word made flesh. The fullness of God's truth in human form. He's the manifestation of the ultimate gift of God's goodness. He comes full of grace and he comes full of truth. He is the gift of God who takes upon himself the sins of all who would follow him. That is goodness. It's exactly what Tozer is saying there. It's not because any of us are worthy of that. He came receiving upon himself the punishment that we deserve because he's good. takes upon himself the full wrath of God on the cross for those transgressions that he never committed, but fully embraced. That's goodness. He bestows on those who are given faith. He credits to those who trust in him the righteousness that we will never deserve. At no point do we deserve the righteousness of of Christ, and yet he is good. God is good and graciously bestows it. That's the reason we worship. This is the reason that in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6, he proclaims, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. You alone are great. And your name is great and might. In verse 
10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. He alone is worthy of worship. That's our desire, again, as we go through each one of these attributes, it ought to lead us to worship and adore Him more. To see that He's completely other than us, and in His otherness, in His holiness, as we'll talk about next week, that He is so good. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great and might. The Lord is the true God. The only way for us to be right, to be in the right, to be true, is to conform to Him. To submit to who He is and what He has said, to His knowledge, to His Word. And this God who is true and who is good invites us to come. Invites sinners to come and to be transformed, to believe and to be forgiven, to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to be saved. And so if you're here and you don't know him, I would encourage you, God is the true God. His word is truth. And therefore we must submit to him. We must submit to him or we are not right And so if you don't know him, if you don't have a relationship with him, I encourage you today as we sing in just a few moments to go to the prayer room. Pete and Karen, Pete was here earlier. Pete and Karen would love to meet you there and pray with you. But we're going to go into a time where we celebrate. We celebrate his truth and we celebrate his goodness. We do that week in and week out through the Lord's Supper. As we take the bread and the cup, we're celebrating God's truth and God's goodness. And so if you know him this morning, then remember his goodness. There is no other way to be saved but through Jesus. Though we are unworthy, God in his goodness and his truth bestows on us the way of salvation through his son Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's goodness from God. That Jesus took the punishment for our sins, took punishment on himself, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed for us. And we remember and we rejoice each and every time we take the bread and the cup that we are beneficiaries of his goodness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. So many things that we ought to rejoice in, and all of them are you. That you are other than us. You are independent from us. That you never change. That you're all powerful. That you're all knowing. That you are all present. That you love us. That you are truth. And the standard of truth. And that you are good in that. And that what you do is good, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. And we need your help. We're desperate for your help, because our flesh resists those truths. And so we pray for your help even in this time as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, that we would rejoice in the truth of your goodness, that your body was broken in our place for us. 
Jesus, that you suffered and died on the cross because of our sins, that you, in your kindness and goodness, took God's wrath on yourself. And we celebrate your goodness, that your blood was shed and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So help us, Father, we pray, to submit to the truth of who you are and to what you've said with joy and gladness in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.